Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. I got to apologize up front, Brian. Mm-hmm. As you can see, there's a lot of cigarette smoke in the studio <laughs> right now. I gained a little extra weight. I've got a full makeover. I, I know how you appreciate physical transformation. I love it when you gain a lot of weight for a show. <laughs> is the sleeveless wolf shirt a little too much <laughs> that I go too far? <laughs> In 2003, the nominees for Best Picture were Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, Lost in Translation, Seabiscuit, Mystic River, and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. But today, we're pushing pause on all of that to take a trip down to Daytona Beach to catch up with another big release from that year. The movie is Monster, directed by Patty Jenkins. Here's the trailer. I always wanted to be in the movies. I thought one day I could be a big star. You look good. Yeah. I guess you could call me a real romantic. Thanks. So you came? Yeah, I was around, you know. I thought I'd swing by. Men must just line up to be with a girl like you. I once heard this saying that's always stuck with me. All you need is love and to believe in yourself. Hey, lady love, you need a ride? It doesn't exactly work out that way. I mean, everybody's got to have faith in something. I touch your face. All I had left was love. So what do we do now? Whatever. Two more. My girl's waiting over here. I got you now. I got everything going for me. Life is funny. (sighs) Girls. But it's also strange how things can be so different than you think. You know what I always wanted to be? President of the United States. You okay? In my life, it's always been the harmless stuff that hurts the most. So where are you headed? You have to put the cigarette out when you have it. You don't know me! Where is the thing so horrible you can't even imagine it? It's usually a lot easier than you think. Shelby, that girl belongs to a dead man. No! I know what I'm doing. And you're never gonna understand it, all right? So you gotta trust me. You never really know. Until you're the one standing there. You think nobody ever talked dirty to you before? I just like to settle first, you know? Lee, who killed that man? What do you think? You can't kill people. People kill each other every day. I think that all these people just didn't know yet who I was going to be. But one day, they'd all see. What do you think of that trailer, Mike? A lot better than Seabiscuit. I love that trailer. Yeah. yeah, it's good. So much. I'd rather, much rather hear Charlize Theron talking more in the trailer than to hear some... Jeff Bridges? Voiceover, homie. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I, I do like Jeff Bridges. But, um, all right. So, in Monster. First of all, since 2003, according to Rotten Tomatoes, there have been five other movies called Monster. Could they not come up with a better, you know, title than Monster? Mm. Other nominations... It was nominated for one Oscar, and it won. Charlize Theron won Best Actress. She also won 18 other awards from various newspapers and other awards uh, groups. Not just nominated, won 18 other awards. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's huge. AFI called this the movie of the year. Coming up in our show, the Farley Awards, we will tell our most awesome moment of the movie. 
We will do. <laughs> Sorry, I stumbled over that a little bit. We will give her golden takes. We will also ask each other one question that is designed to take the license plate of truth off the stolen car of life. We will imagine what might have been. We'll talk trivia and the big reveal. If this were a nominated movie, or if you had to kick one else off the list, would you do it? Keep it or kick it? Farley's. But first, our Farley's most mm. awesome moment of the movement <laughs> movie. And for me, man, talking is is hard today, Indeed. right? Indeed, it's for me. It's the brutal attack. <laughs> I'm going dark with this and our last <laughs> our last best moment. It's the brutal attack on Eileen that happens about halfway through the movie. And it's exactly because it is the hardest scene to watch mm. in this movie. So just a little setup in this scene. She's with a John who drives her out to the woods, then knocks her out. When she wakes up, she's tied up and the guy's about to rape and kill her. Instead, she gets free and shoots him with his own gun. So it's the best moment, I think, because it changes the entire way that we see this character. Mm -hmm. It's so brutal that we're like forced to sympathize with Eileen. So even while we see her as a killer after this, we also can't help but see her as a victim. And, you know, that that stays even after she has that sort of clear predator turn a little bit later. I think that's a credit to Jenkins making us feel terrible during that scene and kind of, um, you know, knowing the effect that that has on a viewer. Yeah, seeing her character change in large part because of that, I thought was totally effective and believable. Um, although, you know, obviously you have to then, you can't condone anybody killing anybody, but um, that, that was pretty intense, uh, intense scene. So my Farley award is for the job hunt. Um, these scenes are so important to the narrative. So Charlize Theron's character, she's already kind of hooked up with her girlfriend, Christina. Is it Ricci or Ricky? Ricci. I think it's Richie. I thought so too. Yeah. So they're like living in this motel and she's trying to go get a job and, you know, live a, live a new life, live a clean life. We have to see that in the movie for us to ever sympathize with her or to go along with her in her, you know, killing spree, mm -hmm. which we don't, but that's why it's complicated and, and such a great movie. In my opinion, it's because we're kind of torn and we're going along with her in that way. But if she just, never even tried anything else, then none of that would really work very well. Narratively, this has to happen. And they're, they're so well done. She's wearing these like awkward fitting, you know, 80s clothes, which is set in the 80s. But um, she's got this awkward smile on her face. She's going in, she's totally unqualified for any job that she's asking for. And at one point, one interviewer says that he's insulted that she ever even applied. Yeah. So it shows how impossible it can be it can feel to get out of this quicksand of poverty that she's in. Um, although you do have to wonder, why didn't she try other jobs that were a little more realistic? It kind of shows a little bit of her kind of cluelessness, I guess, about what it, how you could actually go get a job. You know, she had, she did all a lot of the right things, but I mean, she must've known you would think that you probably aren't going to get a job in a lawyer's office walking off the street like she did. I guess so. I mean, she wasn't trying to be a paralegal, you know, she was trying yeah, to be a, a receptionist. And and he kind of jumped to that conclusion and said, well, you don't, people who really do this are actually paralegals essentially. So, but it did make me wonder like, well, could she not have gotten any other job? But for the most part, I was right along with her. And it, that was kind of the saddest, some of the saddest moments of the movie realizing how hopeless her situation was. 
Yeah, yeah, it was almost too late. Mm-hmm. All right, golden, golden take. Golden takes. So my golden take is that thematically and tonally, this movie constantly undermines itself. And that's what makes it so great. That's what <laughs> makes it so effective. So if you try to explain what kind of movie this is, I don't think that you could do it. You know, I'm thinking about it later. It's like definitely a character study. You can call it that. Mm-hmm. But it's also like a social justice. True crime. Story. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah. It's, it's, it's a true crime story, but it's also a love story. Um, and our hero is also a victim and also the villain. So the way that Jenkins just swings our sympathies back and forth, I think I just think that it makes the morality like impossibly complex, which makes it way more real. You know, like you're saying about that job search, just when we want to fully be on Eileen's side, you know, and say she was attacked, she can't get a job, she was abused as a kid, she was sort of bred into this life. And hey, these are bad guys that she's killing, right? Then Jenkins pulls that rug out from under us. She gives the the guys that she's picking up pathos, like, oh, this guy's only here because his wife is paralyzed. Yeah. This guy is a good Samaritan. He's not even trying mm-hmm. to to you know pick her up, and and she kills him. And, and that and it's a straight up execution. It's a straight there, up execution. It's, there's no struggling. There's no anything. No, and, and that I think is the brilliance of it because when that happens, that's almost exactly when we are like, good for her. She is empowered. You know. Obviously, we're not condoning the violence, but we understand where it came from. And that's the core of it. Understanding her so much that we want to be on her side. And then she does something that makes it impossible for us to be on her side. That's like the genius of the movie, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I recently spoke with a co-founder of a theater group in Palm Coast, Florida, John Spordone. And he told me the humanizing of villains is the history of modern literature. I thought that was a fantastic line. And that's kind of what's going on here. Humanizing a villain yeah. is is what is so complex and so, you know, what makes it worth continually talking and thinking about is worth rewatching. Yeah. Challenging um, our expectations yeah. and, and always trying to figure out where that line is be- between necessity and choice because she rides that pretty she does. Pretty uh pretty well throughout. I read a, a line from a critic, uh, Nick Shager, of the website is called Lessons of Darkness. Have you ever come across that website? No. Lessons of Darkness. It seems like one that you would like. <laughs> you I'm <know>? a dark guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's talking about Eileen Warnos, on whom this movie is based. And she's, you know, actually was a serial killer. She was executed in like 2002, right before this movie came out. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote this in 2005, but he was very critical of the movie. And um, saying that uh, the uh, the image of a poor... Okay, so he says that... He's talking about the very ending scene that she... Um, I'll just read it. In the, in the film's final scene, Warno screams to the jury about her victimhood and then exits behind a door into brilliant white light, her stroll depicted in slow motion and set to the sound of wailing electric guitars. The image of a poor, uh, of a poor empathetic woman driven to kill by a female-hating society, is meant to break our hearts. Instead, the only thing I felt was pity for the filmmakers who chose to largely ignore Wernos' monstrousness so that they might make her a palatable tragic figure, unquote. So I think that I can understand why he would feel that way. Yeah. However, I think my golden take is that this is a different kind of movie to watch 18 years later. It's 2021 now that when we're recording this, I mean, probably people are going to be listening to this in 2030, 2040, probably 2050 forever, long yeah. after we're gone. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, 
it doesn't, it's not like a, a current events movie anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And that changes for me, I think, some of the feeling about it. I don't know anything about Aileen Warnos. I don't remember watching about her on, on the news in 2003 or whatever, 2002. And so I guess for me, I wasn't living around here. Maybe people in Florida, oh, yeah. it was a big deal yeah, at the time. Yeah, I, I was living in Florida yeah. and I was younger, so I, yeah. I wasn't as plugged in. But I mean, I completely do remember this yeah. this being a thing. And, and especially when this movie came out, I remember yeah. people talking about it a lot. Well, I'm curious to hear more about your point of view on that, though, because to me, not being connected to the original incident at all, and it being 18 years later, I'm kind of seeing this as like Charlize Theron is playing this, you know, a really interesting villain mm-hmm. and it's not I don't you know it didn't really I, I didn't feel like it was commenting on Eileen Warnos at all yeah when what a movie comes out I think that you're on to something here that when it comes out soon around yeah. those current events then it's kind of our natural reaction to to feel like we're being sold something like what message is this trying yeah. how is this trying to brainwash me to think about right. whatever topic and this is trying to get me to empathize with a killer like mm-hmm. what's that about um, but I don't really care about that now and even at the time i just think that the craft is so is so good here that she avoids it i would agree with him if there weren't multiple times in this movie and not just when she when she kills the the good samaritan guy but multiple times in this movie where they are forcing us to face the fact that she's making bad decisions not out of necessity yeah that first time is completely out of necessity and it does empower her mm-hmm. but then after that like that line between necessity and choice she's she, making choices continually yeah you know she is a villain in the in in for a good part of the movie mm-hmm. so also i think that there's a different it's this is always hard to distinguish but it's worth analyzing in when you're talking about any kind of art is is patty jenkins feeling the feeling of those electric guitars or is that what Patty Jenkins is trying to make us feel like Eileen Warnos is feeling that electric guitar feeling? Mm-hmm. I think that it's Eileen Warnos that she's trying to show her state of mind, that she's not going into like she's defeated. She's being defiant at the, you know, in the courtroom. Yeah. And she's being defiant going to the electric chair. Yeah. And this is how her character is. And electric guitars are what her state of mind is. Her last line is something like, you know, love conquers all. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, that <laughs> defiance, that yeah. that's there. Like, she's basically saying, like, I don't need any of this. I don't need any of these people. I don't care about, you know, this courtroom. I don't even care about my old girlfriend. It's all about me. And I'm standing behind who I am. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I could see the guitars as kind of being that soundtrack. Yeah. Question I'll ask you. But also, I guess one more thing I want to say about this is um, I think that it's hard for us as viewers and people to live in gray area like this movie does. We want to believe that bad guys are bad and good guys are good. But in real life, I don't I think that that is very, very rare that somebody who's bad is all bad. And I think that that in a way is kind of the point of this movie, right? That somebody could do evil things and may not necessarily be 100 percent evil. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's your mind gets kind of twisted into doing things. And we all, when we make bad choices, um, it's probably, you could probably point to different ways that your perception did get kind of twisted that, that yeah. set you up for doing You start that. rationalizing them yeah, and then exactly. you start convincing yourself that you did the right thing. And then you become more and more entrenched in your point of view until you're, you know, so separated from the right and wrong of it that that doesn't even exist anymore. Yep. Uh, is, I mean, it would now, be an okay time for me to ask a question or let me think if I have anything else to say. No, you can start. Yeah. Go go ahead. Um, (laughs) Does the fact that 
Charlize Theron's character got caught make the movie a better movie? No. We have watched others in which the killer got away with murder. Mm -hmm. What if she would have gotten away with murder? What if the movie ends before she gets caught and it's kind of like just another state of mind movie, but we don't see that. How would you see that movie differently? I don't know. I haven't seen that movie, so I can't, I can't critique it. <laughs> Maybe I'll do like a fan edit of this movie and end <laughs> it before she gets caught. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not very <laughs> invested in, in, in the courtroom and the conviction yeah. and the death sentence, really. Um, a lot of times that can feel a little like tacked on at the end sort mm-hmm. of thing and not really, it's more like the epilogue. More important that her girlfriend betrays her in, in, you know, in her eyes mm-hmm. because the rest of the entire world has betrayed her over and over again her whole life. Um, and then, you know, for no one to kind of see her side in the courtroom, I guess that, that hits that chord one more time. But A corollary to this question I just asked, mm-hmm. would in the bedroom be better if he got caught? No. <laughs> no. Stop, stop trying to get everyone to, to take their justice, Brian. Stop trying to get people, stop trying to get murderers to get caught, Brian. This, this is make-believe. We want, we want murderers to get away with stuff. No, we want to be thinking at the end of a movie and we want to be conflicted at the end well, of the movie. Sh- you're thinking at the end of this. I, that's where I'm going. That, that's one way that I think I'm stitching together those two things. Mm-hmm. The electric guitars, mm-hmm. it's like... She is caught. Justice is is being served here, but it makes you, it just opens up other questions. The way they ended it, it opens up, it's very complex. We talked about complex versus simple. It's, uh-huh. This is a complex ending for sure. But it's an, it's an indictment of the system also. So the system, we could feel good like, yep, we did it. Justice is served, even though we're... If you want to look at it this way, killing a problem that we created in the first place and that we had no avenues of help for. It's both serving and it's being, it's exposing problems in the system because she did deserve to get convicted. She Mm -hmm. did those things and you can't excuse those things, but it does make you think that, you know, what else in the system could be, you know, there's also problems throughout the system. Yeah. And it's, and it's also about homelessness as much as Mm -hmm. as it, as it's about justice, you know, what, what was her recourse? Not, mm-hmm. not what was her recourse then killing people, but what was her recourse when she was looking for a job and she couldn't what get one? What else could she have done but kill these guys? Listen, when you're <laughs> a prostitute at 13, yeah, you, your options go out the window. To, you know, you're not going to go to law school when you're life. however old she was at, at this point. But anyway, we got we to gotta get moving. All right. Mike. My question to you, do Eileen and Selby love each other? I think that when... Selby, played by Christina Ricci, is hitting on Charlize Theron. I think that I was, I felt pretty certain that Charlize Theron's character was not a lesbian and that she's like legitimately kind of like, you know, pushing her off. And that possibly some of the, you know, when they start kissing in the, in the alley, that felt convincing to me. Like you believe that like Charlize Theron is, maybe falling in love with her, but I don't know if like from the beginning, I I don't know, like it's, it's a very complicated relationship, but I kind of thought that the way it was acted, at least that she was partly going along with, um, Selby's, um, advances, advances because she was that lonely and desperate for to have a friend as much as to have a lover. What did you think? 
in a movie that avoids um, clear messages at every point. I think the clearest one here is that people need people and that people yeah. want to be wanted. Mm -hmm. And if is that love in a way, you yeah. know? So I don't know. I kept thinking about their relationship and like mm -hmm. it, in that sense, their love makes total sense because yeah. Christina Ricci, like her family is embarrassed of her. They want her to, you know, they, they send her away when they find out. And, you know, obviously <clears throat> Eileen has just been used by men her whole life. So, Christina Ricci's character has never felt wanted and Eileen's character has never felt in control and they both get this out of this relationship. They both have gaps. It's like, that's from Rocky, right? Like, she's got gaps. I got gaps. We, <laughs> we fill gaps. And I, I, even, I was asking myself that question, like, what is the difference between like our traditional idea of romantic love and this thing that I've brought up a few times about are they in love or were they both kind of just desperate? Like in Lost yeah. in Translation, I said kind of the same thing. Are they just desperate for connection? That thing that you feel, no matter what the motivation behind it is, isn't that the same thing? Is yeah, it, I, except it, the question that I thought was kind of interestingly, you know, broached, but maybe not really, you know, resolved, which is fine because it doesn't try to resolve much of anything. But what about the actual physical attraction mm -hmm. um did she did like i don't i don't know you, oh, it's it, hard to say it's hard to say what was really going on there how can you really tell that about anybody in their in their in their minds but it's another lives? thing where jenkins kind of throws down these breadcrumbs but they're conflicting breadcrumbs yeah. because you do see passion between them at one point but then I think very pointedly, we only see them sleep together one time. Mm -hmm. Selby never even tries to get a job. Never tries. That was kind of weird. She to keeps me. talking about the fact that she's starving and she's just sitting there in a hotel waiting for Charlize Theron to yeah. do something and to make some money and to make, you know, their their life nice. So in a way, like their their relationship kind of feels transactional and it cheapens. It the, does. <clears throat> but at the same time, they're getting they're getting something out of it that they weren't getting before. There is a lot about Chris, uh, Charlize Theron's character, Aline Warnos, that was based on letters and all kinds of cooperation from Aline Warnos. But Selby's character was mostly fictionalized and invented. And I kind of wondered if maybe that suffered a little bit, honestly. Like maybe they didn't want to push that character too far somehow. But it did seem like her character was mostly kind of a wait around and see kind of a character. She didn't really take much action. And I yeah. think that makes it a little less engaging. I think that was maybe one of the, there's not a lot of weak points in the movie to me, but I think that may be a little bit of a weaker point. Yeah, I felt the same way. And then I kind of came around to almost feeling like her passivity and the weakness of that character is almost a strength because it makes us dislike her a little bit, which makes us question yeah. how deep like, this love was. Why are you was? really sticking around her exactly? Because if you're not a lesbian and she's being a, you know, a mooch essentially on your <laughs> exploits, then what, what, what's, you know, holding you there? Well, once she kills the first guy, she mm -hmm. goes out, you know, to make some money for them. She gets attacked. She kills the first guy. And then she completely embraces this identity. And then she kind of becomes the alpha of this relationship, yeah. right? And she's got her arm around her, like really kind of showing everyone. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's almost like a power move. It's they go to girl. that bar. Yeah, it's my girl. And this is the first time she's gotten to be in charge, not only because she was beaten and abused as a kid, but she's literally used by you know, being a prostitute every day mm -hmm. and just cast aside. And this is like the one chance where she's the one getting to call the shots. 
I think that that's all very purposeful mm-hmm. that we feel conflicted about. about yeah, that could be. Like, what, what is that all about? I think that we're supposed to come out of this movie and be asking that question. Mm-hmm. What might have been? What might have been um, among the actresses who were screen tested for this role, Kate Winslet. What do you think about Kate Winslet in this role? In Charlize Theron's role? Mm-hmm. This is going to be another one where I'm going to say no to everyone. <laughs> Charlize Theron is so insanely good Kate in this. Kate Winslet is among the best of our generation. Yeah. So it's hard for me to say that she couldn't pull this off. Um, but inter- yeah, it's, it is hard to think of anybody else in there, but other people, Heather Graham, Brittany Murphy, Kate Beckinsale. Wow. Those are all really interesting. Yeah. For different ways, for different reasons too. But I, I, just one thing about Charlize Theron that I, I love this performance so much because I don't normally say that I love big performances and yeah. this one is huge. I oh, mean, yeah. her mannerisms are like, she's not mm-hmm. being subtle at all. And I noticed that from the very beginning, but I don't know. It just goes with the whole sort of like forced bravado of this character. Mm -hmm. And I bought it every step of the way. And then you just like, you can't take your eyes off of these, these movements in her face, even when she's not talking. Those little ticks and the way she kind of tries to smile, but hide her teeth. And then all those things, they, they, they just, she's got so many ticks and they usually feel self-conscious to me when an actor has that many, but man, she sells it. She does. So Charlize Theron said in an interview that she was kind of confused at first why she was chosen for the role. Um, And Patty Jenkins told her something to this effect, that all the other people that I just mentioned, for example, who were going to be considered for the movie, she thought, I could beat all them up, but I couldn't beat you up. (laughs) (laughs) I saw an interview that she saw Charlize Theron in The Devil's Advocate. Yeah. And that's what sold her. I haven't seen that movie in forever. I've never seen it. I don't remember what she does in that, but it seems like a... (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is what... I have that note, too, that she saw her in The Devil's Advocate, and she said that an actress that would allow a close-up of her nose running helped her to see like, okay, maybe she's willing she's fearless. to do other. Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful and, woman who will, who will let you get a close up of her nose running. <laughs> what? And I mean, Charlize Theron could beat anybody up. Oh yeah. She can Am beat I me right? up. Isn't she like over six feet tall? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Even if she wasn't, she can beat me up. Um, Kate Hudson as Selby. Is that Christina? Yes. Ritchie? Yes. Kate Hudson. After, after, uh, almost famous, almost famous. Yeah. I could see it. Reese Witherspoon wanted to be also Alien Wuornos. Hmm. Not the right time of her career for that, but later on, maybe it's possible. Hmm. Trivia. Um, Alien Wuornos gave tons of cooperation. I already said that. Charlie Theron gained 30 pounds. We talked about that. The biker bar were filmed at the last resort, which is the bar where it actually happened in Port Orange. Mm-hmm. And the owner <clears throat> um, put, a fam- put a sign up in front advertising Cool beer and killer women as a Oof. little joke about this. Oh, that's bad. That's interesting. He acts, the bartender actually makes a cameo as the bartender and uh, threatens to cut off Warnos for being over her tab limit, according to IMDb. Um, also, Patty Jenkins. This is her, a- after this movie, she does a bunch of TV episodes, a few TV movies. <laughs> no movies in the theater until Wonder Woman 2017. Yeah. And she's doing a bunch of stuff after that. She's doing Cleopatra with Gal Gadot coming up. I mean, she's like all now she's like a star with these, you know, these big movies coming up. But how did that happen? Go from 03 with Monster. This is not just some like, you know, attempt amateurish first movie. 
this is like one of the best movies of the year. I'm kind of revealing a little bit of my keep it kicking eventually. <laughs> yeah. But how does she go 14 more years without getting like handed the reins for another another movie after she pulled this off? Hollywood is weird, That's man. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't really understand how these things work. You would th- I mean some people it seems like they make they make a lot of money on a low budget movie and that's like the keys, right? They're yeah. given the keys to some huge franchise and others, Apparently they have to wait mm-hmm. 10 years or whatever it was. So the five movies from 03, Master and Commander, Lost in Translation, Mystic River, Seabiscuit, Return of the King. So would you kick any of those for the sake of Monster? I would. How, I, many, how many of I them? I think I would kick many of them. How many? Oh, I would definitely kick Sea Biscuit. Um, <laughs> would you kick Mystic River if you could only pick one movie? Which one is superior, Mystic River or Monster? I I, I will say I've been debating that because they're so uh, Mystic River. I mean, I guess they're both a melodrama. Mystic River plays up that melodrama mm-hmm. more of a, it feels more like a blockbuster melodrama. Yeah. This is more of a gritty indie melodrama. Mm-hmm. But those two are are close to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd put this over Master and Commander, and I put it over. Uh, Lost in Translation. Well, I, we I really like this. We haven't rewatched Return of the King, so obviously you can't decide if you're going to kick that one yeah. off. But yeah, I guess I guess that you know reveals it. This is this is a hard keep for me. It is a hard keep for me as well. It's gonna be it's gonna be fighting in my top three, maybe for t- the top spot. I, I don't know yet. It is in the same conversation for me. I don't know yet for either, but it's it's definitely when I first saw it, I was kind of like disturbed by it to the point where I kind of was like. I don't really know that I liked it enough, even though I admired it. I like we talked about this over and over again. Is it is it great because it's it does something great, you know, with the with the craft or whatever, or is it great because it like it has that emotional impact on you? And I think somehow the more I've thought about it and the more this character sticks with me, it is making me feel even more confident to keep it. Whereas I was questioning it originally. It's kind of interesting how a little time sometimes does that. But I think that sometimes is a measurement of how great a movie is in my mind is does the character stick with you longer? Mm-hmm. You know, do certain scenes kind of just stay in your mind when you're not trying to think about it? For- it's got that sort of standout iconic performance. Mm-hmm. That That's what, that's the backbone even, here. Even edited. It worked great. Clear <laughs> yeah. play of it, Angel. Yeah. Shout out. But it, yeah, that 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 complexity for me is yeah. is what kept me just thinking about this for mm-hmm. you know at least a full week afterwards. In the next episode, we will go back to our patrons' choice list. Yeah. Pleasantville, selected by Maddie. Thank you, Maddie, for being a patron. It's 1980, 1998, Toby McGuire, Reese Witherspoon, and don't forget Don Knotts as the TV repairman <laughs> I love that. in there. Um, it's uh, directed by Gary Ross, who also wrote Big. He wrote Dave. He directed Seabiscuit in the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking forward to that. Yeah. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of Charlize Theron's performance? Is it a lock for the best actress of the year? I think I think it is. But what do you think? Let us know where we get your answers on the show. <laughs> you can find us at bestpicturethis.com on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or by telling your smart speaker to play Best Picture This. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Best Picture This. And for, and for 15 years of Golden Takes, head over to Letterboxd, where you'll find me, Mike Cavalieri. Do you have a favorite movie from the past that doesn't get the attention it deserves? If if so, become a patron of the show by visiting patreon.com slash best picture this and you can help choose one of our upcoming movies. Yes. Thanks to WNZF and Mark Gilliland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. That helps us reach new listeners. Until next time, r- listeners. <laughs> <laughs>
Remember, only listen to podcasts that you can't beat up, like Best Picture This. Chicken!